So Father, we come to you this morning to worship because you are worthy. You are worthy of our praise. And Father, you are worthy of so much more than just our songs. You are worthy of our lives. So Lord, as your word says, it's our prayer today that we would offer our lives to you as a living sacrifice that would be holy and acceptable before you. Father, it's our prayer this morning that we would not be conformed to this world, but we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds. So to that end this morning, Lord, we ask you to use your word to transform and to renew our minds, that we may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So Father, use your word now to edify your church and glorify your name. Sanctify us in truth. Your word is truth. We ask all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. And uh, as you find your seats this morning, I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bible. Romans chapter 12 is where we'll spend our time together this morning. Going to look at the entire chapter, actually, in a brief uh, time uh, that we'll enjoy here. And uh, so grateful to have you here with us today. If you're our guest, my name's Taylor. I serve here at Cross as lead pastor. And what our church family has been doing for the last few months is we have been in a message series called Ecclesia, where we've been looking at what the church is according to God's word, and more specifically, what is the church called to do and what are the marks of a healthy church. So we're bringing that message series to a close um, today by looking at worship. Um, you know, just as a quick recap so far, we have covered through this message series what is prayer, what is preaching, teaching, uh, ordinances of baptism and communion, fellowship, evangelism, discipleship, church membership, church discipline, and missions. And we did this message series because even among professing Christians today, there is a lot of confusion about what actually constitutes the church. A lot of this confusion has been exacerbated by the events of the last couple of years. And we have this really bad propensity, an unhealthy propensity as Westerners in particular, to categorize almost any form of spiritual activity as church. But what we've seen through this message series for the last few weeks is that this word church, it actually has a meaning. We've not been given the freedom to, to make church mean whatever we want it to mean. And as we've uh, looked at a, a number of different passages across the New Testament, we've landed on this well-rounded definition that we have revisited um, week in and week out. We've seen for three months now that the word church, in its simplest form, it means assembly or gathering. But more specifically, when we look at the whole of the New Testament, these are the irreducible minimums. When we lose any one of these, we lose a biblical church. We've seen the last few months that a local church is an assembly of believers in Jesus Christ who profess him as Lord and are submitted to the authority of his word. They regularly gather under the leadership of qualified pastors and elders to receive the whole counsel of God's word and to observe the ordinances of baptism and communion. They stir one another up to love and good works, hold each other accountable to walk in holiness, and work together to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. We just try to stress week in and week out, when we lose any one of these components, we no longer have a church in the biblical sense. You can call it fellowship, you can call it a group of Christian friends meeting together, but these are the irreducible minimums. If, if we are not an assembly of believers, if we are not submitted to the word, if we don't preach the whole counsel of the word, if there are not qualified biblically, according to 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, pastors and elders, if the ordinances are not being administered, if we're not overseeing and affirming one another's membership per Matthew 18, if we lose any one of these, we no longer have a church in the biblical sense. 
So last week, I closed out our message by taking a look at Revelation chapter 7. This was John's vision of the day when every tribe, tongue, and nation would gather around the throne of Jesus to praise him for all of eternity. And, you know, it's fitting that this is the message today for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's fitting because today is Palm Sunday. It is the day when the crowd praised Jesus on his way as he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem. But, but it's also fitting that we close a series on the church with worship because everything that we are doing as a church is ultimately leading to worship. Everything that we do, all of our preaching, all of our teaching, all of the ordinances, our baptizing, our coming to the table, membership, discipline, all of it is leading to the praise of the name of Jesus Christ. Everything that we do here on earth, it's running to that day, Revelation 7, that we saw last week when we will all be gathered together around the throne. John Piper has written what I still believe to be the, uh, the best modern book on Christian missions I'd encourage you to read called Let the Nations Be Glad. And in this book, he makes the connection between mission and worship. I think I've shared this before, but I want to read this for us this morning. He writes this book, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. So last week, we looked at the Great Commission. We look at the mission that Jesus has given to his church. Whenever we're not fulfilling this, we cease to be the church. But again, the goal for us as a church is not ultimately get everybody on mission. The goal for us as believers is everybody worshiping the name of Jesus. That's the point of our mission. That's the point of everything that we do. You know, the mantra that we've repeated almost every week of this message series is that words have meaning. So we've seen week in and week out, the word preaching, it has a meaning. The word church member, it has a meaning. Church discipline, this has a meaning. Missions, it has a meaning. And God has not given us editorial freedom over the Bible to make these things mean whatever we want them to mean. And, and like every other word we've looked at so far, this word worship has a meaning. You know, when it comes to the term worship, most of us automatically think singing. What we tend to think of is that thing that we did for 10 minutes right before I, I got up to preach. And, and that's how culturally we tend to define worship. It's primarily our singing. But, but to worship God is so much more than just a song. And that's what we're going to see in Romans chapter 12 today. Uh, I remember the first time I really wrestled with this term worship. I was in middle school or high school. And so this is, those of us who grew up in the 1900s, this is a callback a few decades. So popular worship song in the late 90s, early 2000s was a song by Matt Redman called The Heart of Worship. And, and if you, you know, uh, endured the worship wars of the 90s, anybody else know what I'm talking about? Like, like churches splitting over, is the music classical? Is it contemporary? Do we go uh, organ and piano or do we go drums and keys? You know, what, what's it going to be? And, and churches were battling over all this. And so Matt Redman's church, um, he, he's a globally renowned worship leader, but his church went through this very divisive period of time where, where they were just stuck in the worship wars. Everybody's getting bent out of shape about just the aesthetics of worship on Sunday morning. And so uh, their church made this very bold decision, which was they went through a season where uh, they cut out the sound system, they, they took the worship team off stage, and all it was were the voices of the people singing. And, and so born out of that experience was this very popular song, The Heart of Worship. And, and they, what they were trying to get across to their congregation is like, man, we've made an idol out of worship to an extent. 
Like instead of it being about the praise of God, we've made it about our our self-preferences. And it's amazing how how this has continued at home with me even today. I got up here in the first service and as soon as I started to pray, like my mic was, was on the fritz, right? Like it was bad static. I could tell everybody knew what was going on. And, and so it ended up, I just had to use the handheld mic in the first service, which like, you guys know me, I need these to be able to talk. Like, like I, I, it's, it's, it's everything. Like I, you tie my hands behind my back. I, I about couldn't do this on a Sunday morning. And so, you know, internally, like I, there, there's this grumbling, right? We're going to use this handheld mic and, and this is going to mess me up and I can't focus. And, I'm, and, and man, even the Lord, ha- I was speaking to my heart in that moment. He's like, you, you got your priorities out of line right now, brother. Like, it's the, the way, this way that we can just fixate on, on these small things. God's not just after the songs that he, we sing. He, he's after our hearts. I love the bridge of that song. It's the first time I really started to grapple with what worship is. The bridge goes like this. I'll bring you more than a song. For a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear, you're looking into my heart. God's after our hearts. Worship is not just about the songs that we sing. Worship is about the giving of our whole selves. This word worship has a meaning. Worship really is a derivative of an old English term that roughly translates worth-ship. Whenever we talk about worshiping something, we are talking about ascribing worth. We're talking about attesting to the worthiness of something or someone. Worship is an act whereby we express the worthiness of God before him and before a watching world. So to worship God means to display his worthiness in every aspect of our being. And culturally, we tend to think that worshiping means offering him a song, but what Romans 12 shows us is that worship means offering ourselves It's not just the songs that we sing. It's the giving of our whole self. Authentic biblical worship involves the whole self. That's what we're gonna see in Romans 12 today is that the ultimate goal of the church is worship. Just to borrow that from John Piper, the ultimate goal of the church is worship. Everything we've studied for the last few months, it all is leading up to the day when we will be gathered together around the throne with believers from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's all leading to the worship of the name of Jesus Christ. So Romans chapter 12, uh, let's read uh, the first part of verse one, and then I wanna give us a little bit of context for where this passage is coming from. Paul says, Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore. Everybody say, therefore. All right, this is super cliche, but students of the Bible, whenever we are reading our Bibles and we see the word, therefore, what's the question we need to ask? What's it there for? Super simple, very corny. I apologize for that, but it's, it's helpful that these are our cues. We see that word, therefore, we need to be asking, well, what's it there for? Because this is a summary statement. What we're about to read in verses one and two, like Paul's not making this statement in isolation from anything else. No, this is a a summary statement of of things he has already been saying for 11 chapters through the book of Romans. And so this is just a quick walk through the book of Romans. Romans one, uh, which we'll talk about more in just a few moments, talks about how we were created to worship God and be in relationship with him. But then Romans three tells us we have fractured that relationship. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Good news of the gospel, Romans 5, 8. It tells us, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the love of God. That God loves us not because of who we are, but in spite of who we are. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And this is good news because Romans 6 tells us that the penalty for sin is death. 
both physical and spiritual death and separation from God. This is the penalty for sin. Romans 7, one of my favorite chapters in all the Bible, because it basically says we're just a bunch of hot messes who can't get our act together. Like even on our best day, the things we know we should do, we don't do them. The things we know we shouldn't do, we end up doing them. It's like the harder we try, the worse that we get. And it can be so defeating. It can be so defeating. But then, again, good news comes at the beginning of chapter 8, where Paul reminds us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he closes chapter 8, which we've sung together as a church the last few weeks, where we're reminded, he, he says, I'm convinced neither, neither height or death or, or life, death, nothing in heaven or on earth or below the earth, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Then Romans 10 is the gospel invitation, where we're told that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 11, that applies even to those of us who, who were not born among the Jewish heritage, the Gentiles. God has grafted us into this family. And so Paul gets to the end of chapter 11, and it's like he can't hold it anymore. You read the last few verses of chapter 11, Paul just bursts into spontaneous praise. He says this in, uh, if you want to just look in your Bible, Romans eleven thirty three 33 through 35. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And then he sings the words of Isaiah 40 and Job 41. He says, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. Verse 36, he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. It's like Paul can't hold it in anymore. He's, he's made it 11 chapters reflecting on the glory of God and the goodness of God and the salvation that he's offered man. And finally, he bursts into praise. Then we get to chapter 12, and this is where Paul says, therefore, in light of all of that, in light of the fact that, that God has, has made it possible for us to be reconciled to him in spite of our sins, in, in light of the fact that God has shown us grace and shown us mercy and lavished us with kindness by giving us his son Jesus, therefore, he says, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. By the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Church, worship is so much more than a song. Worship is the giving of our entire self. That's the message of Romans 12. So what we find in Romans 12 in this chapter, we're gonna move very quickly this morning, we find at least three marks of genuine worship in a local church. If, if worship isn't just exclusively singing, then what is it? How could we have evidence that we are truly, genuinely a worshiping people? Well, the first mark that Paul shows us in verses one and two is holiness. Holiness is a mark of genuine worship in the local church. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Holiness is the mark of authentic worship. The Old Testament sacrificial system had strict requirements for sacrifices that were going to be made. Uh, they had to make sure that they were holy and clean. So as various animals were brought for the sacrifice, they, they had to be without any sort of spot or, or blemish. And this was attesting to the fact that God requires perfection in order to atone for sins. And as the sacrifice burned, what we learned from the Jewish Mosaic law is that, that that aroma, it was pleasing in the sight of God. When people brought to him a, a, a sacrifice to atone for their sins, this was pleasing to him. But this is the difference that Jesus has made from the old covenant now today to the new covenant. Under the old covenant, mankind had to bring forward sacrifices in, a, in order to atone for sins. Under the new covenant, God provides the sacrifice by giving us Jesus. 
So, so now the, the final atonement has been made. We know that Jesus was the, the final perfect lamb. He was the lamb without blemish, and it was the shedding of his blood that atoned for the sins of all who would believe. And so the picture we get when we get to Romans 12 is that those who are in Christ, we, instead of, of offering our, our, our blood and having blood shed, we simply walk before him as an act of holiness. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. It's to walk and to live in holiness, and this is a pleasing aroma in the sight of God. Offer your bodies, Paul says. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. This term he uses for body, it's a term that encapsulates our whole being. It encapsulates our whole being, our body and, and our soul. And this is what we are called to offer as an act of worship. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer that we give is a response of worship. The answer is that I am not my own. Oh goodness, if we could just grasp that one simple truth as followers of Jesus in 21st century America that I am not my own, but belong, body and in soul, in life and in depth, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what it means to offer your whole self as a living sacrifice. So Paul's painting a picture of total surrender. He's painting a picture of dedicating all that we are to Jesus. And in response to all that Jesus has done for us, this is what makes sense. This is what makes sense. I love how the New American Standard translates Romans 12. It says, this is your reasonable Christian service. I love that language because what, what, what that gets across to us is in light of everything that God has done for us, it only makes sense. It is perfectly reasonable then because Jesus has given all of himself for us, it's perfectly reasonable that we would give all of ourselves to him. So, so how then do we actually walk in holiness? How do we be a living sacrifice that's holy and acceptable to God? What Paul gives us in verse two is an emphasis on what we do not do, and then he follows that with an emphasis of what we do need to do. So here's the don't. Paul says in verse two, do not be conformed to this world. So we're gonna walk in holiness, that this is step one for us. Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. That's really what the word holy means. In essence, it means separate. We're different, we're distinct from the rest of the world. He says, don't be conformed to this world. Now, um, sometime this week, you could open it right now if you wanted to, just as reference, but sometime this week, this is honor system, giving you homework, you need to go read Romans chapter one. You, you need to go read Romans chapter one. I wish we had time to read just the whole chapter this morning because Romans one is a textbook narrative on the culture that we live in today. You and I live in a Romans one world today. And, and so Paul is writing Romans 12 in light of what he's already said in Romans one. And Romans one shows us what the world is marked by. Romans one reveals to us what a world without God, a world in rebellion and rejection of God looks like. He says a world that is apart from Christ, it's marked by at least three forms of rebellion. Romans 1 shows us that the world is marked by spiritual rebellion, it is marked by sexual rebellion, and it's marked by moral rebellion. This is what we see in Romans 1. There's spiritual rebellion. This is where knowledge of God is rejected, even though he has generally revealed himself to all of creation. And at times, people choose to worship the creation rather than the creator. And so Paul shows us Romans 1, there is a form of spiritual rebellion. Romans 1 also shows us the world is marked by sexual rebellion. 
And specifically, Romans 1 says, it's a sexual rebellion that rejects what God has revealed in creation through natural relations between man and woman. Again, you're living in a, in a culture, you're living even in a church culture today that wants that subject to be confusing, and it's not. Like, God has clearly revealed this, not just in how he's created us, he's, he's clearly revealed this in his word, and the world is marked by a sexual rebellion that rejects that design. The world is also marked by moral rebellion. So the culture is marked by hate, it's marked by disrespect, it's marked by gossip, by slander, by pride, it's, it's lawlessness. It's an outright rejection of everything that God has revealed to be good and holy. And, and this is Paul's indictment against the culture in the world at that time. As, as we reject God spiritually, as God is rejected sexually, as God is respected, dis, uh, rejected morally, the words of Romans 1 are that professing to be wise, they became fools. And this is so important for us today, church, because we have a world that, that continues to stubbornly, persistently reject God spiritually, reject him sexually, reject him morally. And what do we call it? We call it progress. Professing to be wise, they became fools. By rejecting what God has clearly revealed in creation and has clearly revealed in his word. Don't take my word for this. Go read Romans 1 sometime this week. The world is marked by this rebellion. The world is marked by spiritual, sexual, moral rebellion. And because of this, Romans 1 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. So what, what's Paul saying in Romans 12? He's saying, don't be conformed to that. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't be conformed to the rebellion of the world. That's what we don't do. Instead, Paul says, do this. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And again, that word mind, it's a callback to Romans 1.28. This is the indictment that's leveled Romans 1.28. It says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And this is the warning of Romans 1, is that if you persistently, stubbornly reject what God has revealed of himself in creation, what he's revealed through sexual design, what he's revealed through the moral law, when we reject these things over and over and over again, there comes a point in time when God will give us over to those desires. You ask the question, how could we know if the judgment of God is being visited upon a people? It's to find a people who have been given over to a debased mind. Yes, because is God's judgment coming on our nation? Church, it's not coming. It's already here. People have been given over to a debased mind. And this is what Romans 2 goes on to say. It tells us that God in his kindness is now giving them the opportunity to repent. You know, I fear what happens sometimes is that we persist in sin, but then nothing bad happens. And we just kind of assume that's God's affirmation of me. That's God's approval of me. Nothing bad is happening to me, so that must mean that God is, is totally okay with, with what's going on here. No, no, that, Romans 2 says the exact opposite. Romans 2 says we're, we're in a forbearance period right now. It, it says that we're right now in a time where the wrath of God is being delayed so that we can have the opportunity to repent. That is God's kindness. It's the forbearance of his wrath so that you and I right now can have the opportunity to repent. You know, this was uh, this, this past week, you know, the government announced again they're going to extend, you know, the student loan repayment period and everything. And that's not a statement for or against, so don't freak out. It's just a thing that, that happened this week. And, and, you know, what would be, I think, foolish for, for us to assume is, is to mean that, that nobody eventually has to pay for that. And I think that's, that's what we get in our minds is like, well, I'm not going to have to pay for this eventually to go, wait, listen, we will all pay for it in some way. We understand this, right? Taxes. That's how that works. And so, so again, we, we, I think sometimes with our sin, like we get in this position, we just kind of assume, well, nothing bad is happening right now. 
God, God is, is clearly not, not opposed to this. No, no, what's happening when we persist in our sin against God, we are storing up his judgment against us. That, that bill is come and due eventually. We can delay and delay and delay and delay all that we want when we persistently reject God, spiritually, sexually, morally. All we are doing is storing up his judgment and his wrath for the last day. And right now what he's given you is kindness. He's given you a, a period of forbearance, an opportunity to turn and to repent. So when Paul is saying, do not be conformed to this world, that's what he's saying, not to be conformed to, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The only solution to a debased mind is a renewed mind. And the only hope for a renewed mind is the transformation that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. So worship begins with unconditional surrender of self. It begins with an unconditional surrender of your entire self. It requires a spirit-driven refusal to not conform to the world and a steadfast commitment to the renewal of our minds. This is a marker of true worship. It's the holiness of our lives, and it's the holiness that's been offered to us through faith in Jesus. Paul goes on then in verses 3 through 8 to speak to our spiritual gifts and how all of these are an act of worship. Verses 3 through 8, he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So marks of genuine worship. First, we are marked by holiness. Second, we are marked by giftedness. It is the exercise of the spiritual gifts. All of this is an act of worship before a holy God. Again, as we wrap up a message series on the church I think it'd be easy to kind of look back the last few months and say, well, it feels like there's a lot more we should be doing as a church. You know, what about, about our serving? What about our giving? What about our acts of mercy? Well, what Romans 1 shows us is that all of this falls under the umbrella of worship. All of these are acts of, of worship. Paul shows us we are all gifted in different ways, and we're all gifted at different levels. And one type of gift is not more valuable than the other. You know, some types of gifts, like preaching and teaching in particular, might have more of a public element. But, but Paul's writings show us repeatedly, time and time again, that every single gift that's used for the building up of the body of Christ has value, and none of us should be able to look down on, on anyone else and feel like their gift is worth, uh, worth less than someone else. Paul reminds us in, in, in these verses that we are one body with many members, we preached on membership just several weeks ago, but just as a quick refresher, what is that word member? What's it literally translate to? That was a group participation thing. Somebody said it, limb. It's, it's a limb, right? Like we're, so again, not, not members like a golfer is a member of a club. That's, that's secular membership. It's member the way my arm is a member of my body. The church plays an, an essential function in, in the life of every believer, and every single believer plays an irreplaceable role in the life of the church. So uh, the church is the body of Christ. We are members or limbs of that body. And, and, and so that shows us like we've not really been given the option of belonging, right? Like so to say things like, well, I love Jesus, but I don't need the church. That's kind of like saying I like to breathe, but I don't need my lungs. 
No, we are members of a body. And if one member decides it doesn't want to be a part of the body, the rest of the body suffers. It's true that Paul is saying we are globally members of the global body of Christ. It's also true that he was writing this to a single local congregation because every New Testament Christian was a part of a single local church. So again, sure, you don't need church membership in the sense of belonging to some exclusive club, but you do need the church as the living, breathing body of Christ to be his hands and feet to advance the mission. And more than that, the church needs you. God has gifted you to do something for the building up of the body of Christ. He has graciously given each individual believer a unique gift that serves an essential function within the church. And so Paul lays out several, verses, or several gifts here in verses 6 through 8 and encourages us to use the gifts. Let's walk through each one of these very, very quickly here. So Paul says, if your gift is prophecy, speaking the word of God, You should do that in proportion to our faith. Now understand, when we say prophecy, uh, very infrequently in Scripture does that mean a foretelling of future events. It really just means to to speak the word of the Lord. Even the Old Testament prophets, they were doing some foretelling of future events, but it was mostly just speaking and exhorting the word of God in that moment. And so uh, if that is your gift, Paul says, do this in proportion to your faith. All prophecy should be tested according to 1 Corinthians 1 and, uh, and 1 Thessalonians. All prophecy should be tested. We do it in proportion to our faith, meaning that if someone claims to have a word from the Lord, then we should test what they say against the word of the Lord. So again, modern day example, it's pretty simple. You still today, a couple of years after the fact, have professing Christian pastors falsely prophesying about who was going to be in the White House and who might return to the White House. Like they've missed it multiple times now. This is not a political statement. This is a theological statement. When someone says, thus saith the Lord, when the Lord hath not saith, that that person is to be rejected. You recognize when someone says, the Lord revealed to me this was going to happen on this day, and then it does not happen. We now have to reject them. That's a false prophet. Like, it's, it's a dangerous game to start saying, the Lord told me, the Lord revealed to me. That's why we test everything that falls under the heading of prophecy against what God's word actually says. And when it contradicts the word, we reject the false prophet. So if that's your gift, prophecy, that's an act of worship. Speaking the word of God, that's an act of worship. He says, if service, and you're serving. Your service, your ministry, even behind the scenes, even as insignificant as it might feel at times, and Paul says, no, that's an act of worship. The one who teaches in his teaching. Teaching is an act of worship. So even recognizing this morning, like worship is not just happening in here today. I mean, you go down the hallway, all of our cross kids leaders, what are they doing? They're, they're teaching. And in their teaching, this is an act of worship. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. It's what I'm doing right now. The, the exhortation, the preaching of the word. It's an act of worship. It's, it's a little bit of a lost art form in our, in our culture today. It's actually worshiping your way through the sermon. Like that, that's what sets it apart as, as distinctly spirit-driven. The one who contributes in generosity. Paul says, if that's what the Lord has, has, has given you to do, he's given you a generous heart, you like to gladly give, he's blessed you financially, he says that's an act of worship. You'll hear that almost every single week when someone gets up here to do the welcome, that our giving is an act of worship. Not just our singing, not just our reading, not just our praying, even our giving is an act of worship. He says, the one who leads with zeal. I love this. Yeah, because few things are more deflating and discouraging than, than apathetic leadership, Right? I mean, just, just lethargic, apathetic. And so he's saying, listen, if you lead, do it with zeal. Do it with energy. Do it with enthusiasm. And by doing this, it's an act of worship. The one who does acts of mercy, he says, with cheerfulness. Acts of mercy. These are things like caring for the sick, feeding the hungry, serving the poor. 
And this is interesting. I think we should pay attention to this. He says, do this with cheerfulness. Now, why would he say that? Well, again, just think about the events of the last couple of years. You know, ask, ask anybody who's in healthcare right now. You know, there is, uh, it's a real thing, compassion fatigue. Like you, you just, if you are in an intensive role or, or vocation, you're in healthcare, you're, you're in ministry, you're, you're a counselor, when, when anytime you're in a type of position where day in and day out, you are helping people through the worst of the worst, over time, it starts to wear on you. And, and so this is, man, what we should be praying for, for the people who, who have that gifting and that's what they are engaged in. Paul says, if that's your heart, if that's what God's gifted you to do, do it with cheerfulness. And in so doing, we worship a holy God. Every single gift, every single gift plays a unique role in building up the body of Christ. And every gift has a proper place and a necessary function. So again, go back to verse one. We're to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. Verse eight reminds us we are members of one body and individually we belong to one another. So, so understand, church, when God gifts you individually to do something, the gifting he has given you is not primarily just for you. He has given you that gift first and foremost to bring glory to his name, but secondly, he's given for the building up of the church. If God has gifted you in teaching, he has gifted you to teach to build up the church. If God has gifted you in exhortation, that's for the building of the church. If God has gifted you in leadership, in giving, in serving, acts of mercy, that is for the building up of the church. I would go as far as even to say this. God has not primarily gifted you so that you can get a paycheck. That hopefully plays into what you're doing day in and day out vocationally, but God has gifted all of us for the express purpose of the building up of the body of Christ. I just challenge all of us to consider this morning, how are you using the gift the Lord has given you for the building up of the body? Because to use that gift for the building up of his church is an act of worship, which means to not use it would be an act of defiance. When we refuse to use the gifts that the Lord has given us for the building up of the church, we rob the Lord and his people of what rightfully belongs to him and to each other. How are we using our giftedness for the building up of the body of Christ? This is a mark of genuine worship. And then Paul closes out the passage, verses 9 through 21. I'm going to read through this quickly. It's a longer segment here, but this is really our application for today. You know, what, what does it mean for me to walk and to live in holiness? What do I do with Romans chapter 12? Well, I, I love this. You know, the subheading in my Bible, if you've got the ESV, something from Crossway, you probably have this too. The subheading in my Bible titles this section, The Marks of a True Christian. So again, what does a living sacrifice look like? What, what does it mean for us to walk in holiness, to not conform to the world? This is the mark of authentic Christian community. So about 30 different directives Paul gives here in these 11, 12 verses. He says, let love be genuine. This is verse 9. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Maybe underline this one in your Bible if it isn't already. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's a word for somebody today. As much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So marks of genuine worship. How can we know that we are a congregation of genuine worship? The first mark is holiness. The second is giftedness. Third mark is our togetherness. It's a word, Google it. It's our unity. It's, it's working together, nine through 21. This is authentic Christian community. This is what it looks like to be a congregation, a collection of living sacrifices. When we are doing this, this will be the natural outflow. This is what's gonna be exhibited among us in our relationships. And again, you're asking the question, what do I do with Romans 12 today? Verses nine through 21 is what you do. That, that's our application today. That's the response I would really just challenge you, man, take, take, it, take 30 minutes with this passage sometime this week and circle like the first three that really come to your mind. Like what's, what's the Lord really speaking to you? What's it look like for me to be a living sacrifice in my sphere of influence? But here's what we have to recognize is that apart from the sacrifice of Jesus for us and our faith and our confidence in that sacrifice, if we attempt to do verses nine through 21 on our own, it's gonna lead us to one of two places. You're either gonna become a self-righteous Pharisee who's, look at me, look at how I'm checking these boxes, look at how well, look at how effectively I'm, I'm doing every one of these things. No one's as loving as I am. No one's as gracious as I am. No one's as united as I am. That, that's, that's the type of mentality you'll draw into if you think you can do this yourself. Or it's gonna go to the opposite end of the spectrum, which is despair. We start going, I could never be this. I can never be this, but this is the good news of the gospel. We can walk and live as a living sacrifice before God because Christ died as a sacrifice for us. And, and God is not judging us on the merits of how well we keep up with this list. He's judging us on the merit of the fact that Christ has already done it perfectly for us on our behalf. And we get to call on his name in faith and believe and receive that promise the true church of Jesus Christ, it doesn't just preach the gospel, it lives the gospel. And verses nine through 21 shows us this is what it looks like to live the gospel. This is what it looks like to be people who have been captivated by a holy God, who have laid themselves down before them, who are using their gifts for the building up of, of the body of Christ. And these verses, these 12 verses right here show us this is what it means. This is what it means to be a worshiping community. Just to summarize all these real quick, you ask again, what does an authentic worshiping community look like? It looks like this. According to these verses, it looks like genuine love. It looks like a hatred of evil. It looks like competing with one another to show honor. I love this. Like Paul's saying, if you're gonna compete with each other, let it be like one-upping each other about how awesome the other person is. Like if someone compliments you, out-compliment them in return. Wouldn't that be funny to see that argument in the church? Like, you're so loving. No, you're more loving. Well, you're even more loving. No chance that I'm as loving as you are. Like, like a self, you know, deferential, like, no, 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 no. Like, what if we were competing to show honor? Like, to out-honor one, one another. What, what does that look like? Maybe have that argument in your community group tonight. It'll be, it'll be fun. Um, serving the Lord. That's, that's what it looks like. Zeal, fervency of spirit, rejoicing in hope, being people who are patient in tribulation and suffering, constantly praying. That's what Paul says authentic Christian community is financial generosity, we don't give because we, we, we think God's gonna give us more in return. No, we give because we've already been given everything in Christ. It's a response. It's an act of worship. It looks like welcoming hospitality. It looks like love for your enemies. It looks like walking in peaceful harmony with each other. It looks like befriending the lowly. 
paying attention to the people that no one else pays attention to. It looks like not needing revenge. It's an act of worship before God, the pursuit of reconciliation and overcoming evil with good. This is worship. These are the marks of authentic worship. This is God's vision for the local church. And so our response this morning, it's very, very simple in light of these 12 verses. Just to paraphrase the catechism, our response is to offer all of ourselves. This is what we do. Offer all of yourself, heart and soul, mind and body, in life and in death, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, it only makes sense. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, do that. Because Jesus has given all of himself for you, we respond by giving all of himself, all of ourselves for him. You know, you could almost think of worship as being like holding up a mirror to the sun so the sun could see its own reflection. You know, the sun radiates its power, it radiates heat, it radiates glory. And then what we do is we, we hold up a mirror and we are reflecting back to the sun its power, its, its glory. That, that's what we're doing to God in worship. We are reflecting his glory back to him. He reveals that he is beautiful and he's holy and he's glorious. And we affirm that, not just with our songs, but with every aspect of our lives. Yes, Lord, I am fully surrendered to your plan and your moral law. I am fully surrendered to you and the fact that you revealed yourself. I am fully surrendered to your design when it comes to sexuality. I'm fully surrendered to these things. That is our worship before a holy God. It, it is entirely possible for us to be people who sing loudly with our voices raised and our heads lifted and our hands lifted, but if we're walking and living unholy lives, then God hears none of it. It's so much more than the songs that we sing. It's the way that we live our lives day in and day out. That's true worship, not just the songs that we give, but giving of ourselves. Now again, as mentioned earlier, today is, is Palm Sunday. It's so fitting that we, we just landed on, it just so happened to land on worship on, on Palm Sunday. Maybe kind of planned it that way, but it was the natural conclusion for the series, so you do with that what you will. Um, it's Palm Sunday. It's the day that Jesus triumphantly rode into Jerusalem. And, and as the crowd waved the palm leaves and as they spread their cloaks on the ground, we, we sang it earlier, what was the, the word that they continued to cry out? Hosanna. Hosanna. You know, it's a word that, that roughly transa- translates Please save. Please save. And, and you know, church, you and I have a benefit today, 2,000 years ago, that that group of people on Palm Sunday did not initially have at the time. And the benefit we have is knowing that Jesus heard their prayer, that he did save. It wasn't in the way that they were expecting. It wasn't in the way that they would have planned, but he heard the cries of his people, and he did save. And because of this today, you and I have the privilege not of worshiping him with leaves, but of worshiping him with our lives, of giving all of ourselves for him. We, we know that, that five days later, he went to the cross. Five days later, he took our place in death. He bore the punishment that we deserve. He went to our grave, and then he overcame it on the third day. We have the privilege of knowing this. We have the privilege of seeing this. And, and so, it, and especially in view of what Paul writes in Romans 12, it only makes sense for us. that This Jesus who gave all of himself for us, it only makes sense. This is our reasonable Christian service, that we would give all of ourselves for him in return. And so here's the privilege that we have today. The privilege we have today is knowing that even though we cannot make ourselves an acceptable sacrifice to him, Christ has already been the acceptable sacrifice for us. 
The, the message of the gospel is not make yourself holy and acceptable and then come to him. The message of the gospel, the invitation is come to him and he will make you holy and acceptable. It's not clean yourself up and come to, G, come to Jesus. It's come to Jesus to be cleaned up. And, and this is the beauty of the gospel is, is no matter the depth of our wickedness, man, even if we're, we are textbook our lives, Romans 1. Like we're in rebellion against God spiritually, sexually, morally, like we've rejected him outright. It does not matter the depth of that rebellion. The message of the cross is you can come to him. You can come to him. You don't have to fix all that before you come. You come to him to have all of this cleaned up and fixed. It's, it's not him needing us to be worthy. It's just simply, are we willing? And the invitation of the gospel is that if you are willing, then he will make you worthy. Because he was the good, perfect, holy, acceptable sacrifice for you, you can be made into an acceptable sacrifice for him. That's what makes him worthy. And because he is worthy, he's worthy of our praise. The church, as we, we close this up this morning, in just a moment, we're gonna enter in, into just an extended time of song because we want to, I think especially today, emphasize the worthiness of Jesus through, through our songs of praise to him. But, but I hope you recognize as we look at Romans 12 today, we as a body of believers, 21st century Westerners here in the United States, we have our work cut out for us. The desperate need of our day is Romans 12 Christians in a Romans 1 world. And you're even in a church culture right now that's going more Romans 1 than it is Romans 12. And God is continually, day in and day out, giving more and more people over to a debased mind. We've got our work cut out for us because this is what's been entrusted to us. It is holding the line unflinchingly on truth as it's been revealed to us in God's word, recognizing we're gonna get a lot of pushback. You're living in a culture that looks at Romans 1 and says that's hate. That's bigotry. That should be silenced. More and more voices saying that should be illegal. That's coming. Not there yet, but it's coming. And so we've got to be people who are willing to stand on, on Romans 1 unflinchingly, and yet at the same time, just the same way Jesus did for us. It's not just preaching against sin. We've got to be people who are standing with sinners. And this is the position that puts us in. Is that sometimes from, from the, the ultra-religious on the far right, they're going to accuse us of being soft because we're welcoming sinful people. And then you're going to get the, the ultra-secular on the far left. They're going to accuse us of being harmful because of the truth that we preach. And, and then, you know, when you're catching flack from both sides, when you're holding the line on truth and standing with sinners, that sounds a whole lot more like someone else I find in Scripture. That's a man named Jesus. Just, just recognize, like, you, we're going to catch that from both sides, but the desperate need of our day is we've got to be Romans 12 people in a Romans 1 world. And the difference for us is who do you worship and what do you worship? What is uppermost in your affections? What is worthy of your life? And if Jesus is not at the top of that list, if he's not the foundation of everything that you are, you'll drift more Romans 1 than you do Romans 12. But because he is worthy, we give all of ourselves to him. And he's worthy of, of our praise. So I'm just curious, will you bow your heads with me as we, we close out this morning? In just a moment, um, we are gonna come to the table for communion and the, the table is where we are so clearly, most clearly reminded of the fact that Jesus gave all of himself for us. He was the perfect sacrifice for us. His body was broken, his blood was shed. And because of what he's done for us, we can be holy and acceptable before him. And only by this. A watching world needs more than anything else a worshiping church, and that's gonna be a lot more than our songs.
it's gonna require the full giving of yourself. And so I just challenge you as we, we prepare our hearts to come to the table this morning, have you conformed to the world? Have you conformed to, to the secular creed that's being preached today? Are you being catechized by sin? Have you conformed to the world? Have you conformed to the world spiritually? Have you conformed to the world sexually? Have you conformed to the world morally? The invitation of the gospel is have your mind transformed by Jesus. Give your debased mind over to become a renewed mind. Through confession and repentance, come to Jesus Christ. This is his kindness. This is the forbearance period where he is, he is drawing all people to himself, calling people to himself. Take up his invitation and come to him. So fathers, we come to this table this morning as we, we prepare our hearts, Lord. Help us to be honest about the sin that's in our lives. Help us to come before you in confession and repentance, knowing that it's your kindness that leads us there. God, don't let us treat our sin lightly to pretend like a lack of immediate consequences means that there will be none. But we thank you above all else that Jesus has paid the price for our sins, that we do not have to be saddled with that bill if we will call on his name in faith and be saved. So Father, we ask again according to your word that we would not be conformed to the world. We would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Help us to be living sacrifices before you that are holy and acceptable in your sight on behalf of your son, Jesus. We plead his righteousness. We plead his obedience. We plead his suffering, knowing that we have nothing else to give. And we come to this table now to remember. So Lord, let it all be a sweet fragrance and aroma to you today. Not just our praying, not just our singing, not just our responding at the table, but the way we live. Let it radiate Jesus as we go. We ask all these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen.